Yeah, thank you, Church, and thank you, Pastor Peter. Gracious, uh, welcome online and on site. Good to see so many of you today in our midst. It, you can never replace the gathering of God's people and the sense of God's presence and the anointing when we reach out to Him and worship as, as His people. So thank you for doing that. Now, if you've been following with us, um, and I trust that you have been following with us on this sermon series called Supernatural Realm. Okay, and those of you who have not, let me encourage you to just go back. You can uh, listen to us on Spotify or watch us on our YouTube channel because every sermon is building upon the sermon that is before and the sermons before. So it makes sense like today is the, the flood, the second part. So you need to know what happened uh, last week. And so I pray that uh, you will do that because we are diving into Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis. And it's a book that most of us know and usually when we read Genesis, especially the early chapters, we will zoom in on Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3 is, a, is an event, an incident that's so tragic, uh, that, that, has, that is so um, vast in its effect on humankind that we all know that. We know that it's the fall of a human race. We know that sin entered our human race through Adam and Eve. Death came and the eventual spiritual separation from the Lord. We know that. But in the opening chapters of Genesis, it records not just one rebellion. Actually, there is more. There are more, uh, more rebellions there. Last week, Pastor Wilson shared with us the second rebellion, which is found in Genesis chapter 6. And in this rebellion, this, uh, this wayward uh, Elohim, the sons of God, came down, descended, and they mated with the daughters of men. And they produced what? Ungodly offspring, thus furthering the corruption that was already there amongst uh, the humans. And so God was so grieved that He wanted to wipe out that entire evil population there and there, except for Noah. Because Noah and his family, they, they, they were exceptional. God found Noah to be a righteous man. So because of that, uh, sin came into our world through Adam and Eve, but through the sons of God, it went a notch higher. So human depravity became more etched into the DNA of the human race. More and more we will become corrupt because of this evil influence. And because of human de depravity going up a few notches, human misery escalated in both scale and scope. We don't have to go far, you know. Every day we hear we see, we understand in nations, in societies, this is something that is well known to all of us who live on this earth. But hallelujah, Jesus Christ is always the answer to whatever rebellion. Jesus is always the answer. How many of you would say amen? Those of you online, you just put in the chat, amen. Jesus will always be the answer. And here again, the Messiah proves to be the resounding answer and cure for this second rebellion. And so, let's go into it. The title of this sermon is The Flood to the Answer to Human Misery. And the big idea is simply this. Jesus' resurrection deals with the depth and scale of human depravity. If you were following with us in last week's message, you will hear Pastor Wilson already attributed the answer to Jesus Christ. Today, I'm just going to like extend, elaborate, expand on it to show us the immensity of Jesus' saving work, both not just for the human family, but also for the spiritual family. And I hope we can appreciate uh, how undefiable the power of God is and how unsearchable the depths of 
God's wisdom. So there are two things we want to look at, human depravity and human misery, and how Jesus comes to deal with those. First, let's look at the first one, which is Jesus dealing with human depravity. Now, when you look and read the opening chapters of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 3, you know Adam and Eve fell. And then when you look at Genesis chapter 6, it's like it's a whole new level of corruption, a whole new level of wickedness, so much so that God himself said he would want to remake you know, and recreate humanity. He would have wanted to then almost reach that point. And so how did humankind become so evil in a, such a space of time? Last week we learned it's because of the influence of the supernatural beings, because they were corrupt and they wanted to corrupt the line and they wanted to disrupt the, the seed that would come from, from Eve, that human seed that would crush the head of the serpent. So they wanted to delay that, they wanted to uh, uh, cause as much problem to the human race before that happens, you know. And so here we are we're confronted with the onslaught of increasing depravity on humankind because of these evil influences. So how does Jesus come and deal with this? Now you remember Sermon 5 when I talked about Genesis chapter 3 and how Jesus went into the wilderness, which was the, the abode of Satan, right? It wasn't, you know, the normal story is like when Jesus was tempted, he was like taking a test. I told you that wasn't. He went and confronted because he went to the enemy's camp. In the same manner, today you see Jesus going to the enemy's camp, right at their doorstep, and he's going to address this. Okay, before we can go into it, I'd like to show you some geography. <laughs> Let's look at this map. The map of two places I want to highlight. The top place is called Mount Hermon, right? the orange uh, arrow. The bottom of it is called Caesarea Philippi. Now, these two places will become important in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew 17 when Jesus is going to address the second rebellion. So first of all, Mount Hermon is always significant to the Jews, especially the Jews in Jesus' day, because this is the spot they identified as the Genesis 6 spot where the sons of God descended upon the daughters of men, Mount Hermon. And I'll tell you why Mount Hermon is a likely suitable spot. Okay, but before we go there, let's look at Caesarea Philippi, which we will read about in Matthew 16. Okay, let's look at this place. What is this place known for? It is the cult center to the Old Testament Baal or Baal. But at the time of Jesus, this cave was the place of the Greek god, where they worshipped the Greek god Pan or Pan. In the Old Testament, this region is in the region of Bashan. If you know Bashan, uh, um, one of the root words that, that, uh, that is the meaning of Bashan is the word serpent. And when you read the serpent, you're straight away taken back to Genesis chapter 3, the Nakash. This place is called the place of the serpent. And when you visit Israel now, you will still see this cave. And this cave, because of the, um, the structure of the cave and how deep this cave goes, it is known as the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. It's the place where the dead go. They will go there, they will stay there. And who is in charge of the gates? Satan. He's the Lord of the dead. Okay, so this is the backdrop. Let's go into Matthew chapter 16 now, verse 18. And I tell you, Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
And so you see from verse 13, they were passing Caesarea Philippi, this exact spot. And Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? Right? Remember the story? So one said this, one said that. And then Jesus said, who do you say I am? Right? And then Peter, by the revelation of God the Father, he said, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. After he said that, Jesus said, and upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, shall not withstand it. So, scholars have been talking, debating over the centuries, what is this rock? Who is this rock? So, is it Peter? Because Peter's name in Greek is Petros. When Jesus said, on this rock, that rock is Petra. So, is Jesus using a word play? Is he saying that, Peter, you will be that rock, I will build my church? That's, that's one possibility. Or is Jesus talking about himself? Because we know that God is our rock. Is Jesus saying, upon who I am now, as you see me, I will build my church? Or is it, some, some people say, is it the, the confession of Peter? Not Peter, but his confession. What was his confession? That you are Christ, the Son of the living God. Based on this confession, he's going to build his church. Is it that? Uh, may I submit to you today, let's not spiritualize, then let's not speculate, let us not allegorize. What is the rock? The rock is that rock. Nah. That's the rock. You know, they go past. You see, this cave is supposed to be for the worship of Pan. It's called the gates of hell. Upon this rock, not in any place, upon this rock, I'm going to come and build my church. So Jesus is confronting now. He's not like, oh, let's, I don't know why we are here, but we are here for this purpose, that you know that I'm going to build my church on this rock. Because I'm going to defy what they have done, the sons of God have done. I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to reverse it. And so when you see the word gates, right, sometimes we think the gates is also like, well, you know, we are coming out against the gates. But gates are, are never weapons of offense. They are always weapons of defense, right? We call them gated communities, the gate. So when you say gates of hell, we're not, we are assaulting the gates of hell. Right? So ultimately, we, Jesus is the what? Okay, or we say Jesus is the ultimate gate crusher. In this case, he's also the gate crusher. Because it's coming against them. They are, they are of, not offensive, they are defensive. He is going to come, and so Jesus said, I'm going to turn Satan's home, this place, the gates of hell, into finally Satan's tomb. You know. His fate is sealed already. So that's the first thing. Okay? Then we go on, chapter 17 of Matthew. Now how does Mount Hermon come into the picture? Huh? So let's look at um, 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, where, where is this high mountain? Let's go back to the slide that says Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is only 16 km north of Caesarea Philippi, where we saw the gates of hell. So that's the mountain that Jesus went into. And why this mountain? Because Mount Hermon is three times as high as any other peak in Israel. In the Old Testament, we see the people went up to high places to worship the idols. This was a high mountain, a place suitable, right? a site for pagan worship. And when they excavated, they found more than 30 shrines you know, to many gods along the slope of Mount Hermon. And so this was the place that Jesus brought them. Okay, verse 2 of chapter 17. And he was transfigured before them. Where? On Mount Hermon. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. 
If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So we see that this transfiguration, the place that Jesus um, selected, chosen, was not random. It was exactly at Mount Hermon that he was transfigured. So my question is, he was transfigured well and good, but why was Moses and, and Elijah chosen to be there? Correct? The question before that is, how did they know that they was, this was Moses and Elijah? They saw two figures, right, with Jesus. How would they know? I don't know how they knew. Maybe Moses was sending out, giving out his calling card. And said, I'm Moses. <laughs> Some, I don't know how they knew. But Moses and Elijah, maybe in their conversation somehow, they figured out it was Moses and Elijah. Now, also many uh, commentators have, have said, why Moses and Elijah? Some said Moses represented the law, right? And Elijah represented the prophets. Possibly. But Elijah would not be the choice prophet uh, in my mind. It should have been Isaiah. But why Elijah? So we don't know, right? So I'm going to give you something that I think is likely, but it's based on my own uh, humble opinion. Okay, remember Moses in Exodus 33, when God told him, you know, Israel, they're to totally disloyal, totally rebellious. I'm not going to go with them into the promised land. I'm going to send my angel. Then Moses said, no, Lord, if you don't go with us, we will not leave this place, remember? And Moses asked, show me your glory, Lord. Show me, give me, give me a reason. You know, give me something to work on. Show me your glory. And, and God said, I cannot show you my glory. The moment you see me, you will die, and all human beings will die. So what did, what did God try to do? God said, okay, I will, I will make my goodness pass by you, covered Moses' eyes, and only allow Moses to see the back of God's glory. You know, so he could not see God. Now Elijah, remember Elijah was in the depths of his despair, running from Jezebel, and he was exhausted and he was tired, and he needed something from God. And then he wanted to hear from God. So he went to the outside, you know, he saw this big wind blowing, but God wasn't there, the Bible said. This is in 1 Kings 19. And then he saw the earthquake. Wow, something that, that is awesome to behold, but God was not there. Then he, he saw the fire that broke out, but God was not there. So how did God appear to him? How did God speak to him then, finally? Remember the story? What did he hear? Uh, just a whisper. You know. If God were to show him his full glory and, and speak to him, uh, he would have gone death. I don't know, I speculate. So these two individuals in the Old Testament wanted a face-to-face -face confrontation with God, but they could not because if they did, they would have died. Yeah. But here Jesus is revealing His full glory. In Matthew 16, He was the, the veiled Messiah. Here, He's unveiling His full glory as the Son of God. They saw Him in His glory. Neither Peter, nor James, nor John, neither of them died. Yeah. Why? Because the unapproachable light in Jesus is approachable because He's fully Son of God, but also fully Son of Man. Yeah. And we thank God for that. He came to show us God in full glory. But also we hear what was the purpose. The first purpose is to, to affirm to his closest aides, right, that he was who he said he was. Because after this point, everything will go south. You know? I, don't, I don't mean geographically, I also mean metaphorically. Because after this point, Jesus will go to the cross. You know? And hearing the Father say, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And seeing him in his glory, they will be kind of comforted uh, when the most 
uh, an unexpected thing would happen, that he would die on the cross. Okay, so this is a place of comfort, but it's also a place of confrontation. Jesus is showing his glory to who? To those, the sons of God, and those that follow the way of the sons of God, the corrupt sons of God. He's telling them, your time is up. Huh? The stopwatch has started for your demise. I'm coming back to reclaim everything that you have taken from God. Okay, so that was a big, uh, that was a confrontation, that was an act of intimidation. So well and good. So Jesus um, dealt with human depravity at the level of the sons of God. But what about us in our own individual uh, struggle with human depravity? Okay, centuries before Christ, when the prophets look at how Israel has fallen, right? They went down and down. They were like, they came to God and said, will Israel ever produce the Messiah? Because then they were in exile. And it seemed like all hope was lost. They would never recover the ability to, to bring this offspring, the promise of spring to crush the head of the serpent. And so for Jeremiah, when he cried out to God, here's what God told Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 33, God said, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the, those days of exile, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel too prayed the prayer of uh, hopelessness and God answered him in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, and I will give you, referring to Israel, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people. I shall be your God. Verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. So when, when this change came, when this law came into us, written inside on our hearts, we will loathe the things that we did against God, the, the, the evil, deprived, undepraved things that we did before God. Jesus himself reiterated this in Mark chapter 7. He said, verse 21, he said, For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so to deal with human depravity, it cannot be something from the outside. That would fail. So God had the plan of bringing it from the inside. The law of God must be observed and obeyed from the inside. And how? By Christ's death, resurrection and ascension, He sent us the Holy Spirit. Not just to uh, recite, but also to preside with us. Look at John 16, verse 7. He said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is saying, right, if I do not go away, the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 14, verse 15 to 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we do love the Lord and we do want to keep his commandments. But because our insight is unclean, we need help. So verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit given to us now it's our internal uh, GPS. It's the law of God written in us to guide us, to lead us, to teach us, to form us, and to warn us. 
So in short, the prophecies that God gave through Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, they were all fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ. When He came, He died, He rose again, and He sent us the Holy Spirit. So for us as human beings, you and I, to now conform to the image of Christ, we need some, a new creation, right? A new, that's something new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul tells us, if any man, if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The old could not obey, but the new has come. And because of the Holy Spirit in us, we are able to come against uh, increasing depravity that we know so well. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, here's Paul telling us about the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we could not do this. We could not come against this escalating evil only by the power and the renewal of the Holy Spirit in us. How many of you can say amen? Amen. amen. God is so good. So Jesus deals with human depravity. And we know he, he dealt with the, the spiritual, uh, in the spiritual realm and He deals with us in the personal realm. But because there are still people, as long as we live in this world, there are still people who are, who are unconverted yet, who are unchanged yet, they don't have the Holy Spirit, right? And so a result of human depravity is the problem of human misery, which Jesus now also deals with. Okay, so in our imperfect world, we know there's a whole spectrum of pain that unfortunately all mankind must go through, all humankind must go through. Whether it's the, the infant, just, you know, because so hungry, right? The fan, frantic, agonizing cries of the baby, you know, who don't, he, he or she doesn't know why, but she's hungry and in pain. So that's the cry. On the other hand, what about an elderly, knowing that um, he has a terminal case, you know, and it's just silently waiting. You know? So in all aspects, young, old, educated and educated, rich, poor, you know, it's no respecter. We will face human misery in one form or another. So for us, it, it does discourage us from being um, the images of God because we are fighting against people who are unconverted, right? We're trying to live a holy life before God and it's not always easy because we have got to flow against uh, the crowd many times. We, we, got to, we, don't have, we can't follow the crowd. We have to go against the tide we have to do things. We have to keep like sometimes banging our heads against this wall of resistance. So in the Old Testament, this was something that was known. Look at Job. Job was the unwitting recipient of trouble, right, of misery. In one day, the Bible tells us he lost everything he had and he was a very wealthy man. Not only that, he lost seven sons and three daughters. They, one, one stroke, everything disappeared. You know? I mean, he, like any of us, he would have asked the question, Lord, what did I do to deserve this? You know? He didn't really understand. So in the Old Testament, there was no way to explain suffering clearly until Jesus Christ. Because each of us, when we go through suffering, there are three questions that come to our mind. And we are tempted to ask these questions. First, is God really real? Right? Why am I going through this? Is God really real? That's the first question. Second question, if He is real, does He really love me? Does He really care? Does He know what's going on? Okay, I know He's real, but why am I going through this? What did I do to deserve this? The third thing is, if you think he, he is real and He loves you, the third question you will ask, if God is doing all this, is He not able to help me? Why is He unable? Is He powerless to help me in my situation? Is my situation too much 
for God to help me? That would be another question that we will ask. The Old Testament never really had a way of understanding this. But what about Jesus? How then does Jesus deal with the problem of human misery? First, uh, first thing to note, Jesus did not avoid misery, although he didn't deserve it. In fact, the Bible tells us that God doesn't run away from our pain. The pain is because of what? Because we sin against God, right? So in some ways, we are deserving. Jesus was not, but we were deserving. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, uh, the woman was sentenced, right? Both the man and the woman were sentenced to a life of hard labour. First, the woman in her childbirth would experience pain. And today, everybody calls that what? Uh, my wife is in labour. And then the man, to till the ground, right? He would come uh, against resistance, uh, uh, forces that would not help him to do his work easily. So the two words, pain for the woman and toil for the man, is also in Genesis chapter 6, the same root word. And in Genesis chapter 6, it's not the sons of God who will experience this, it's not the daughters of men who will experience this. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it tells us that God experienced this, you know. It said that when God saw the evil that was on the face of the earth, He grieved him. Same root word as toil and pain. So God is telling us, He recognized that because of the fall of man, we will suffer. We will. Because that's, you know, that's, that's the result of falling away from God. But God did not say, that's your lot, you know. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to enter into it. Genesis 6 says, God grieves you. Know. He's grieving for us. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't avoid it. After uh, the confession of uh, Peter, and after he said, I will build my gates. No, I'll build my gates. I'll build my church. <laughs> and the gates of hell should not prevent it, will not prevent it. When he, after he said that, he said something else in verse 21 of Matthew 16. He said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He would not die a normal death. He would be killed. By whom? By those who, who have evil intention. Okay, after his majestic transfiguration, right? he showed everybody, this is who I am the divine God. I'm showing you my deity. Then in chapter 17, verse 12, he follows with this. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Whose hand? Isn't he God? There was no reason for him to suffer, but he said he would suffer at their hands. Hands of those who are depraved. So what did Christ do to help us in our misery? He did two things. First, Christ came, into, uh, came in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh to redeem suffering. So he's going to give us hope, right? There's a present hope and there's a future hope. First, the present hope. How? Through his crucifixion and his death. He came to tell us that suffering can be redeemed, that you can find meaning even though the reasons behind it are elusive. You don't know why. But God said he also went. He, Jesus was sent to that cross to bear that suffering on our behalf. Not for, not for himself, but for us. That's how Jesus showed that suffering can be redemptive. And for us today, he's telling us that if we go through something, a pain, and all of us will go through, and we don't know why. 
Like Job, Job didn't know why. You know? Job didn't know the backstory. He didn't know the background story. And for us, sometimes we'll go through, Jesus is telling us, I did not avoid the suffering. I, I went through the suffering for you to know that in your trouble, I have not forsaken you. In your pain, I have not left you because I am in that pain with you. So that's the present hope, knowing that Jesus knows exactly you know, what pain feels like, what suffering, and, and his is even more because it was needless. He wasn't deserving of it. Well, we know we are deserving of it. And sometimes we just ask, God, give me grace and mercy to go through this. It's because of my foolishness, my wrong choice, my lapse of judgment that I fell into this. But God, be merciful, be gracious. And you can look to him because he's not the God who stands out there and says, look, I know you will do this. He's the God who says, I know you will do this. That's why I came to die for you. That's why I came and suffered on your behalf. And Paul tells us the same thing. You know? He said, we are to take the gospel and for the sake of the Gentiles, we are to take them. And they will not like it. Or my own people may come against me. They may not understand. But this is the cause. I must suffer for their sake. First Peter chapter 2 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. See, he gave meaning to suffering, so that you might follow in his steps. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We all know, but evil, we suffer. But he said, there's something Redemptive, if you suffer for doing good. Now, one day in our evening walks, Linda and I, and before you think Linda is my wife, we were discussing on something that came out in the, in the recent news about this young woman who wanted to save her, her boyfriend or fiancé from the burning vehicle, remember that? And how she, in the process, she was badly burned. So we were talking about that, and... And then my wife asked me, if I were in a similar situation, would you do the same thing? It's supposed to be evening walk, you know? So, anyway. <laughs> now, that's almost the same question as wives when they pose to the husband, uh, the scenario. Unlikely, but they say, one day if I'm drowning and my mother is drowning, who would you save? You know that question? That one is easier for me to answer because I can't swim. <laughs> so I can't save anybody. But this question she asked, so in a similar situation, my, when my life is threatened, uh, would you come and save me in, at the expense of you suffering as well? So I, I tried to look her in the eye and said, yes. <laughs> I want to prove to her that my love is not just undying, it's also dying love, you know? Okay, okay, no, no. I don't want to be a hero here because that's not the end of the story. <laughs> then she said, don't. Don't. Why not? I said, I want to prove my love. Why not? He said, okay, listen. If, you, if I am uh, in a life-threatening situation and you come to help me and you are also hurt in the process, we will become burdens to our daughter, our only daughter. And we don't want that to happen. So I thought she was thinking about me. But she was thinking about our daughter, which is... Which, which is which is fine. Wow. I wasn't a hero. If I would do that, I wasn't a hero. She would have become the hero, you know. She said, don't come and save me. Remember, we still have a daughter. We don't want to make her an orphan overnight. But these are tough questions, right? Would you do that? Would you be thinking or would you just follow your heart and just reach out? Even though you may cause pain to yourself, would you do that? I don't know. Tough question. 
And, and I want to tell you that Jesus is able to take every tough situation and every possible eventuality and turn it around by giving us a second, second solution. The first one was about present hope. He's going to give us future hope because He gives us the last word on suffering. What's the worst thing that can come? Paul said, humankind's last enemy is death. When we suffer to the point of death, what happens? What happens after that? Jesus, His resurrection, uh, His ascension, His exaltation told us that there is an answer after death. That death is not the last word for those of us who are in Christ. So we know Jude and Peter told us, I mean, in, in the reading, uh, in their writings in last week's sermon, that Jude and Peter tells us that these sons of God, these rebellious sons of God, they are awaiting their punishment. All right? So we know this is the hope in the future, that one day every wrong that is done, uh, that is unanswered, um, God will vindicate. Okay? That's our future hope. If we experience some suffering that is not due, uh, unnecessary, we don't deserve it, God will answer for us. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 37 to 39. Paul has this assurance and he gives us this. He said, no, in all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what's the last word for us in Jesus Christ? The last word for us is not death. The last word for us is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Because God wants us to be His images. So we need a whole lifespan of eternity to become His images. Jesus came to do this for us. Now, Billy Graham, the renowned evangelist, before he died, before he was promoted to glory, he said this. He said, someday you will hear or read that Billy Graham is dead. He said, I, I want you to know, don't believe a single word of it. I shall be more alive than I've ever been. I would have just changed my address, but I would have gone into the presence of God forever. Amen? So death is no more the last word. Death is no more the defeat that Satan wanted. In Jesus Christ, he turns it around. Because he rose, we will rise again. So what can we take away? Summary. Okay, let's look at the summary first and then the spiritual implications. The first thing is this. You know, the first rebellion brought us sin, brought us death, brought us toil, brought us pain. And the second rebellion just escalated the whole thing, blew up the whole thing, human depravity and human misery. But in Jesus, His death, His resurrection, His, His ascension, He set us free from the evil powers of darkness and redeemed us from our misery. So that was what happened. Secondly, the Holy Spirit now who is in us is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. So Jesus, having disarmed the powers of darkness, taking the claim, taking away their claim over us, so we're no more under the authority of the evil spirits. But what about us inside, right? We still have to deal with that. He gives us the Holy Spirit who continually transforms us into His image, the image of Jesus Christ. That's the second thing. The third thing, what can we do as a church? Therefore, we, the Church of Christ, will continue her assault on the gates of hell. We are not uh, defensive, we are offensive. 
and through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, these captives that have been set free, these loosed captives, will also receive eternal life. Amen. In this world, we have this thing called uh, repossession. We didn't pay, then we have, somebody will come and repossess. So in some ways, we are the spiritual repossess, repossessors of God. We are part, partnership with Him to repossess all the humankind who are now in uh, misery and in depravity. Okay? Two spiritual implications. First, we who have been set free are to stay free. Right? Set free already, stay free. Genesis 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in that freedom and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. Don't allow the enemy to have a foothold. You've been set free by Jesus. Ask Him to help you not to go back into that. First Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free. Listen, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Romans 16.19 and 20 Paul writes to them and says, But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we know that future vindication is going to happen. Meanwhile, we stay free. We stay in the Lord. We remain. We decide. We live for Him as best as we can by the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. Paul says, Be wise. Be matured. Be grown up in what is good. But be innocent. No matter what the world is doing, don't get involved. You know, don't say, oh, you know, F-O, F, uh, FOMO. <laughs> you, you're fear of missing out. No, you're not missing out. That is what they're doing. Don't go back into that world again. Secondly, the second implication, we who are set free now are to use this freedom to be a testimony for the Lord and to set other captives free. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, we have experienced the Lord. His light is in us. That transforming light is in us. We are the images. That light is for people to see that we are the images of God. And in a darkened world, we are supposed to what? Help transplant them from the world of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. That's what we can do. Secondly, Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we, the church, has, we have been given this, this privilege and this authority in Jesus' name to bind up the works of the enemy and to set free those who are still in the clutches of these evil forces. God has given us the key to unlock and the key to lock. So today, as we come to the close of this message, and before we go into communion, why don't we just close our eyes and let's come before God and say, Lord, while so many things you have done for us, we may not understand everything, but we, we have to be forever grateful, Lord. Not only did you deal with the human issue of the first and second rebellion, but you also dealt with the spiritual side, the unseen realm, because they were the ones, the serpent and the sons of God, they were the ones who tried to corrupt human race. God, in Jesus Christ, you're so powerful and we thank you 
Some of us, we may be in a situation where we are experiencing real pain now and we don't know why. All we can know is God has not abandoned us. He is with us. We say, Jesus, you know exactly what I'm going through. You know this pain. I don't understand. I don't know what I did to deserve it. I don't think I deserve it. Can you help? Bring meaning and redemption even through my suffering. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us a key, a key to life, a key to change the destiny of so many people around us, our family and those who are still caught in the grasp of sin and depravity. And they have no answer because there's no answer apart from Jesus Christ. No lasting, sustained answer. He's the one who gives us present hope and a future hope. And as we do that, as we come before God and thank Him and talk to God, I'm going to invite Pastor Peter to come and prepare us for the Holy Communion. So don't, don't rush, rush into it. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us.